Hello and welcome to the podcast Love, Life and Loss. This week we hear part two of Grace's story. Grace talks about her experience supporting a family during a loss and the impact this has on midwives. We often hear what it is like for the families, but this time we hear what it is like from a midwife's point of view. So please join us. some of your experiences when you're when you've been at work and some of the good and some of the bad um I will tell you a good story about loss I think it's not a good story about loss but I think just hearing feedback from women who have experienced loss in terms of me being able to be a part of that journey because for me when I look at it it kind of like a privilege really because just 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 the same as being part of someone's journey to give birth and that baby's well and everything goes to plan that feels like a privilege it's because it's an important time in somebody's life like that's one of the most significant times of someone's life is the same for when someone has lost you get an opportunity to impact somebody's journey forever and you get to meet their child as well. For me, for example, for Zion, he only got to meet four people in the world. Yeah, and you were one of them. Yeah, he's me, his auntie, and he, the two midwives. Yeah. And that in itself is, is for me, that's the way I look at it. So, you know, I'm not going to shy away from asking you, what's his name? And, you know, what did you want him to wear? Should we take pictures? You know, things that you would do if this was a child that was born well and born alive. So I did have a really nice experience where I'm, I was with a lady who is having a late loss. Um, and I was with her for the full 12 hour shift. And thankfully she did um, give birth on my shift. So sometimes women are there for a long time, you know, waiting for things to happen and waiting for the body to respond to the medicine and stuff that is gonna actually bring on the labor. But um, I was with her through through the whole journey and, and actually, you know, the family was able to come in and, and quite uh, thankfully at the trust that I work in, we've got a really good bereavement room. So it's kind of like a home from home environment where there's a kitchen and, you know. Oh, that's and, yeah, so it's like. We were just talking about that the other day, weren't we? Not having good spaces. For, yeah, no, to be but, honest. Yeah. It's one of the best spaces. I've, well, I mean, I haven't seen many bereavement spaces, but um it's got a kitchen and a sofa bed and, you know, for the family to stay if they, if, if needed. And, you know, there's a proper duvet rather than like the hospital sheets and stuff like that. Um, which I think is quite a nice environment to be in rather than feeling like you're in a cold clinical place. Mm. Um, and this lady, you know, wrote some feedback to me afterwards. I mean, it was difficult in the moment for her to say what she needed to say, but, um, what she said she found helpful was that obviously this is my job and there's no taking away from the fact that I'm there doing a job but she felt like I was in her family and when I was there I wasn't there as her midwife as such I was there as like a family friend and somebody who actually genuinely cared about what was happening and I wasn't shirking around saying certain things 
you know it's always those moments where you feel that uncertainty and you feel that lack of confidence in the room where she was like I didn't feel that from you I felt like it was just we were here this is what was happening and this is what we was doing um and you know like when you deal with with scenarios like that you know it's really hard to maintain you want to maintain that wall of professionalism you do and you have to because you have to understand it's not your experience it's it's that person's experience and you're not part of their family but they also want to feel like you are part of the family really of emotion but not too much emotion yes yeah but i mean that's what that's one of the things that i wanted to ask you about though because you are a human being you are a woman, you are a mother, mm. so it is going to impact you. Mm. How, how do these things impact you? Because for me, that happened to me. Hopefully that only ever happened once, never happened again. But for someone like you, you will experience these situations yeah. more than once. You know, and I, I, don't, I mean, I don't know how often, I don't know how often these things happen. So I don't know how often you experience it. Mm. How, what is it like? How do you deal with it? How do you know, what's your... It, yeah, it's tough. I remember when I, um, so when I did my nursing, I worked in gynecology. So we used to get a lot of the early loss before um, 18 weeks. Um, or, you know, people that decided to terminate pregnancies because of abnormalities or different things like that. Um, and I remember the first time that I had to like prepare a baby having, um, you know, mum's miscarried and I've had to prepare the baby for her to see and for it to go down to the, to the morgue and all of the different parts of the journey that happens after someone has a loss. And at the time, the ward that I was working on, again, I was one of the oldest um, midwives on shift. I wasn't a midwife then, sorry, I was a nurse. I was one of the oldest nurses on shift. I was the only one on shift that had children. And that was my patient. So obviously, of course, I'm, I'm looking after that lady. And I remember taking this baby into the area where you kind of sort them out, put the blanket on, put the clothes on and different things. And I stood there and I stalled. I absolutely, that was it. I was a wreck. But obviously you just, <sighs> you go, and then you go and you sit on the bed and you like, you know, whatever. And they can see you be crying. It's not stupid. Um, and thankfully I haven't, um, you know, I don't see it that often in my role now, not to say it doesn't happen that often, but you know, it's, for most midwives, you don't have to deal with it, you know, multiple times in a short space of time, you might, you know, and if you have, you know, any good managers and leaders will make sure that you don't have to do it same again, the next shift, or they might then, if that lady's still there, put you back with her just so that she has that continuity. But if another loss comes in, they're not going to give that one to you. But it is really emotionally draining. Like you're saying, you have to find that balance between caring, because you do, you're not emotionless. Um, so you have to find the balance between showing that person and that family that I actually genuinely care. And this, is, this hurts for me too. Not too like it's the same amount as hurt as it yeah, is for, you, for anybody but... who's around yeah he's a baby uh, uh, you know a baby dying that's no matter how hard you are yeah you know you can't can. it is um... can i ask a question so what and just obviously we're coming we could talk about this stuff for like mm. days i'm sure <laughs> um but just as we're coming to the end talking about 
that whole uh, loss and supporting women, do you guys get sort of a bereavement training or, or and and do they have any specialist support? So, you know, like when policemen or whatever, if they've witnessed a murder or something's happened, they normally have counselling support and that type of thing for them. Yeah, yeah. So is there anything like that for midwives? And also, also, do they give you any training on how to deal with families who have lost? So there is there is um, training. I can only say, again, I've only worked as a midwife in one trust, so I can't say what happens nationally or, or whatever, but... There is training, bereavement training. Um, but what I will say is that there's no training that is going to tell you what to do when you're standing in front of a woman who's lost her baby or a family yeah. who's lost their baby. Um, so they can give you all of the information in the world, but it, that part of it is that comes from you. That comes from... So they can tell you what to do. You take these bloods and you make sure this and you, you know, you offer your condolences and whatever but when you're standing in front of a person there's not really much that can you can train to say or do yeah what about you then so you know if you, you've been you've helped a patient who's lost sadly lost their baby mm. you have to go home with that and what support's given to you well there are um in most trusts what they call a professional midwifery advocate who um they are both a debriefing sort of thing for women and mothers, but also staff can use them as, um, I don't want to say counselling, it's not counselling, but they, they, they have extra training in supporting staff to manage their emotions, deal with difficult situations, talk things through, um, debrief, things like that. So there are um, professional midwifery advocates but again, all of these stuff depends on whether you choose to access them or not. I was, going to, I was about to ask that. Is it something that you have to like volunteer for and seek out yourself? Yeah, no, it's not automatic. They are always on, on hand or available to support you. But if you choose not to access, the, to access them... But I a, suppose um, line managers should really, I guess, if somebody, if a midwife's having a hard time... Um, you know, and they look like they need support or they don't seem to be coping well or they've had a string of, it might not even be baby loss, it might be other things that they see, abnormalities or whatever, things that are affecting families, basically. Um, they might suggest or, you know, is there a culture, I guess, where there's it, it thinks about the support of the midwife as people that are carrying a lot? Yeah, is, your manager is, come to you after you've finished, finished a shift, knowing you've lost help a lady who's lost a baby they should then come to you or he and say some might what's available some might access this but it's not it's not consistent then no it's not consistent but I think some of that speaks to the the pressure of the job and yeah. um, do is there time to um even take five minutes to to go into the room with a, a midwife or just put your hand on it you know it's manic most of the time and once you hand over even as the manager or the, the leader you've been pulled ragged you run ragged as well so it's a bit like I definitely want to go home okay so what I'm hearing is that there needs to be more support really there needs to be more support but what I have seen also is is a lot of external um organizations really coming into the hospital to help provide that support so there's um organizations like SANS who um 
help to support hospitals and give hospitals a lot of resources and different um they give you training they don't give you training no but they they provide um well they don't not that i've seen i don't know if they do or they don't but i i, I have seen a lot of resources a lot of counseling services for mums this is less for the midwives more for the mums but i suppose when you know that there's something that you can Okay. signpost yeah signpost women to and and kind of create bridge that gap between what you couldn't give and what you know that there is um it's quite helpful for you to know that there are things available even if you know your yeah. profession doesn't yeah. allow for it my my midwife she we they had a sandbox yeah the information in it but then there was the, the tool there to do um, cast of my son's hand. Cast and photos and footprints. Yeah. yeah. So I think even that is just helpful to just build, even for that mum to have those mementos of their, their child. Oh, yeah. Um, and as a midwife, some of that is cathartic for you as well because you feel like, you know, you're that conduit between making sure that woman goes home with yeah. something tangible. Yeah, you've done something to help. Yeah. You have. You genuinely have because you you didn't create the box, but you've made sure that that lady's got the box. Yeah, do those things. I mean, like, do is there certain things that you would do you have to decide as an individual how you handle a situation, or is there certain things that it's, it's just universal? Like, for example, when I had Zion, my sister, thank God, took the initiative to take photos. Mm. I, didn't, I didn't even think about that, that wasn't in my head. I need to take photos, I was focused on him in real life. Mm. Uh, but I always remember that a midwife came and bought me a camera after he passed away. And it didn't have any battery either. And I just thought, mm. I was there for nearly 12 hours before I gave birth. You could have charged that and you could have mm -hmm. brought that in before mm -hmm. because you've experienced something like this similar before. You've got that foresight. So why didn't you think you're going to want to take a photo? You're going to have a photo mm -hmm. of your son. Here you go. Yeah, I think it's it's just such a, it's just so like it varied between places. For example, in my trust, we have a dedicated dedicated bereavement midwife who her job is, is to look after all of the mothers that are bereaved or who are experiencing baby loss. So as soon as um, a mum comes in having lost their, their baby, that's her. Um, she knows, you know, all of the bits and pieces that are available. She will coordinate all the care between the community midwives and all the bits and other people that might go out to see her. She might go out once or twice to visit that person when they once she's seen them in the hospital. And so I don't know if all trusts have that sort of thing. Things yeah, like I think that's a common theme, though, and I think that's not just about maternity services. Mm. I think the NHS on a whole, it's a bit of roulette in in the terms of what kind of care you're going to get what kind of rules and procedures that different trusts have that might be relevant to them. The I know that a couple of the, uh, the people, Louise are, and I know somebody else that's been on that's spoken about at the particular hospital that is local to them, they don't have particular tests for babies and you have to yeah. go to another hospital that's further yeah. away and all of the rest of it. And so I do think that um, that is a common theme, the inconsistency and... I guess it's about, you know, how fair is it to just say that? It depends on the trust. And, and because a woman is a woman wherever she is, isn't it? Yeah. So shouldn't good care be standard if it's all from public funds? 
And what you also think about is if we kind of touch back on how that impacts black and brown women, the more deprived areas obviously will have less services. So you will find that the experiences that are that of loss that happen for black and brown women will have the worst, you know, worst experiences because they're generally or, or you find pockets of deprived areas with black and brown women in them. So of course they're not going to get the care that say a white mother in a more affluent area is going to receive with the bereavement midwife and the, the services and the, the time and the whatever. Yeah, um, I mean, I've, I've seen it and I've experienced it myself. When I lost the child in the hospital near me, this, it doesn't have a neonatal unit. It cannot, it cannot look after babies under 30 weeks. And that's very evident, it cannot do that. When I was pregnant with my rainbow baby, Marley, um, and I, my cervix started to open up with him, um, I was 24 weeks, and again, my local hospital couldn't support me. They transferred me to Norfolk and Norwich, and it was like a different world when I really? went there. Yeah, it was amazing. I, that, that hospital was amazing. Mm. One of the first things they said to me is that we've helped babies for 22 weeks. And that was really hard for me to hear because that my, my son was like, you, yeah, 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 yeah. And I just thought, if I lived here, my mm. son might be alive now. He might be with me. Did you not have the option to transfer the first time? I, I, this, is a, this is a sad story for me because my hospital, as soon as I walked into the hospital and told them my weeks of gestation, they decided to give me palliative care from the very beginning. They, they yeah. wasn't, I, I wasn't given the option to transfer. I, I, in fact, when I had the conversation, I was, when I asked why, they said they didn't bother ringing the nearest hospital because they knew they'd say no. So they didn't even bother asking. Uh, um, but yeah, so I wasn't. I wasn't given. I was just given palliative care. And then my son was born alive. They expected him to be stillborn, but he was born alive. And not what he was alive for 47 minutes and not one doctor come to see him while he was alive. Yeah. So but then if you think about, you know, like you said, the area that you live in, it's a bit like a roulette. It's like you yeah. said, a rock and roulette. It's it's a lottery. Yeah, it's, that's why I said it's a postcode lottery, because it depends on where you live to what care you're gonna get. And if you're realistic about it, there are lots and lots and lots and there are lots of black and brown women in affluent areas, but equally there are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of black and brown women in more deprived areas. So of course, of course the experiences of those black and brown women are going to be worse because they don't have the access to Yeah, from the off, um, from the off, you don't have the access. And and I also find that for for me, a common theme is they don't um well I didn't actually realise this, this was a thing, to be honest. I thought it was just to, for me, it's only since I've done research, but the, we have a, women of colour, brown, black women, we have, we seem to have more of a higher pain threshold, probably because we've had to, you know, endure so much extra over the years, it's been built up, but we mm. do tend to seem to have a high, I personally, I know I've got a high pain threshold, and people don't seem to take that seriously. Mm. I've, I've, actually, I've given birth four times, and quite a few of those times, and I've said, the baby's coming, a bit like you, Dawn, no one believed me, because I'm not running around screaming in pain. Like, mm -hmm. I'm just breathing. I'm breathing through it. But even um, that in itself, even that in itself, is it that is that you're not running around in pain means that you're not feeling the pain, but in our culture or whatever, you don't make noise. You don't make noise. Yeah, that's exactly what we said. Yeah. Shush, stop shouting and shouting yourself. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So is it that I'm not feeling the pain or is it that you just don't know? That I'm trained yeah, to not be a screaming person. Yeah. No, me. It's funny because I watched, I recorded um, my last two births 
I feel them because I was like, you know, when you're in the moment, you like everything just flies by and you don't know yeah. what's going on. Yeah. So I recorded them and till my daughter's 13 now, my last daughter, she's 13, and I I didn't make no noise. I didn't make no noise. And it's only maybe two years ago I watched the video and I was like, I made that noise. Yeah. I don't, I was like quite distressed that I was making, I know what making noise, it was just like normal kind of, you know, normal kind of labor pain sort of thing, but I wasn't screaming or yelling or anything like that. But I was, I was horrified when I heard myself. So it's like, we don't get to that point where we're, I mean, sometimes we do. Sometimes, yeah. But, but in our mind, it's like that thought of coming out of your body like that and your voice raising past a certain certain level. For people to hear. Yeah. For people to hear. It's a shame and you want to be in control. Like, I remember thinking, watch that one born every minute and I see these girls scream. I used to be like, I was horrified watching them. Honestly. I I would never behave like that. (laughs) No, not me. And if your mother ever hear you shouting that, that, right? You know? So, yeah, you're right in the sense of that that pain threshold and that that mismatch between what people demonstrate to you and versus what they're actually feeling. Same same with emotional things and mental health and all the different facets of the journey that people often kind of dismiss amongst the black and brown women. Well, she didn't tell me she ain't got, you know, she's feeling sad or whatever. Um, but again, back to that continuity, when you see a woman over and over and Throughout, over again, and yeah. you're like, yeah, you were like, you don't look right today. Yeah, what's yeah. going on? Yeah. Oh, nothing. It's funny as well because there's a lady who wasn't seen by me and, you know, for most of her pregnancy. Um, her midwife was then off for a while and I saw her twice. And the second time I saw her, I said, Mm-mm. you okay? And she said, yeah. Mm-mm. <laughs> and then it all came out, all of it. So that continuity, just seeing her even two times in a row really makes a difference between what people are able to pick up. And of course, yes, you're busy and you know that you're on a clock, you know, for some for some trust, you get 20 minutes to check the baby, to discuss whatever you've got to discuss, book this, arrange this. You've got 20 minutes each time you see that woman. And sometimes... It's not possible. It's not humanly possible. Even with the best of midwives, it's not humanly possible to fit everything in and to make sure you you spend time and not make them feel like they're being rushed or whatever. But you you got some level of understanding or some level of intuition, whatever you want to call it, to really pay attention to the bits that people don't often want to show you. And like we we're saying, black and black people have over the years, whether through experience or through being taught that way by our elders don't show you certain things no I agree and it's not and I don't, and it's not necessarily healthy either I'm trying to break that cycle to a degree with my children mm. because I I, I I I spent most of my life being that strong mum did, you didn't ever see me emotional like I've cracked on with things if I did cry it was in private it was in the bath or in the shower mm, and, mm, and then you just brush up and yeah yeah, yeah. Like, I was in my eyes it's a bit of shampoo but yeah I sneezed I was just sneezed <laughs> yeah <laughs> But I'm getting better. 
at you showing my children my emotions because I want them to know that it's okay to show your emotions, that it is that it's normal, it's normal to be happy, it's normal to be sad, and it's okay to show it. Don't hide away when you're feeling bad. So and even and even, you know, just it's so multifaceted because you know, then you think to yourself, as a black woman, you go into a into a midwife appointment and you say, Look, I'm struggling with, you know, ha- dealing with my other children, for example. I'm I'm not mentally there, whatever. Your fear is that she's gonna report me to social services yeah then that's a whole nother thing so the fears and the thought process that that women have had to go through in terms of making sure that they get what they need for themselves is so like complex it's so complex you think about the fact that you want to reach out because your mental health is trash right now Mm. but you're worried that if you tell them you maybe don't have enough money to get food, that they're gonna, that's gonna make them think, well, we need a social services referral. Then we know what the, the pathway in terms of black and brown children in social services and all of those other elements. So, you know, even just down to getting your basic individual needs as a mum, a pregnant mum, as someone who's experienced loss, you know, whatever it is, you, then in the end you're like, you know what, leave it, don't worry about it. Yeah, 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 and I do think, but I also think there's a lot of stigma related mm-hmm. to black and brown women. And so if, a, if I'm going to sound really controversial, but if a white woman went to the doctor or midwife and, and said that they're having mental health problems, they would want to know why, oh, what's happened to you? You see, you, you, I, well, I'm making a presumption here because I'm not white, but I presume that they would be more concerned rather than making assumptions. Well, I feel that if you're black or brown, then they do make assumptions of you straight away. Oh, it's because, you know, oh, she must she must be poor or she must have this going on. She must be a single mom or, you know, mm. and then they put you in a box and so straight away, they've already decided what kind of care they're giving you where we're trying to explore all these different options and mm. actually really get to the root of what's going on. Mm. And I think we are in tune to that as well. Hence mm. why we're reserved. Yeah. It's only when I actually started this job and I, I, thought about, for example, even using that same example of, you know, I'm feeling low. And the kind of questions that they ask, like you said, what's happened or how, this is a big one for me, is is your partner supportive? That's one for one group versus is the partner present? You know, do you have have family support? Why would I not? You understand, it's it's very, and, and, and it's so subtle. It's so subtle. Yeah. And if you're not attuned to it, you completely miss it. I think some people do it without even realising as well. Yeah, that's and that's it. That's it. Comes in. That is they, it. That's the, the, they have the thought process straight away. It's to stick I remember being asked that, is dad around or something? And I was like, I'm married. You're bright. First of all. <laughs> you know, like, but it's just that the, the assumption is real. Um, mm. Grace, I... I you know thank you so much for you know all of everything today has just been like nuggets of wisdom and i'm really hoping that some of our mums as well um will be able to have not some sort of support but some sort of understanding from what goes on the other side because a lot of the things you said today i wasn't aware that that's how things run but i did want to um also uh ask you about your podcast so obviously thank you for coming on to (laughs) Louisa and I's podcast but um you have your own podcast which is very relevant so do you want to tell us a little bit about that well yeah so um in the pandemic um when I supposedly had more time (laughs) I don't know 
um I guess I wasn't going out gallivanting as much as I do now but um I was thinking about all of these things to do with you know the outcomes for black and brown mothers there was there's a there's a key piece of um is it research there's a key paper that is used amongst maternity called um god it's gonna embrace report it's a report and what it does it gives um statistics about um the main contributors to poor maternal outcomes and poor neonatal outcomes um, over the prior three-year period. So um, every year it comes out for the three years before. And, you know, over the years, the outcomes and the statistics, I can never say that word. (laughs) Statistics um, for black and brown mums have got progressively worse. And that for me was like, how? How? there's so many developments in maternal care. The research being done is, is, you know, is is improving all of the time. And I thought about, you know, what that means for black and brown mums. I am a black black mum, and I think a lot of it is to do with knowledge. And I thought if I can do my small part to bring awareness to to the fact that this is a reality for black and brown mums, then. I mean, I, you know, I don't know what I can do in the, I don't want to start a campaign or a petition or I, I don't know if I can just let a hundred people know, look, this is an issue in the UK and, you know, I don't know what to do about it, but. As long as we're aware, because, but the thing is, I think that, you know, your podcast, this podcast, podcasts that talk about this thing in a very real way will at least raise the awareness amongst ourselves. Because if there's one thing that I'm learning, even in the work that I do professionally, it's that if we sit around and we wait for people from other races to help us or to fix it for us, we're just, we're never going to get anywhere. So even if I, as a mum, and if I, you know, had got pregnant again now, there are just, because of my awareness of how yes, things uh, might work or things that have happened to others, mm-hmm. it just would make me behave in a different way. If any of my daughters got pregnant now, the way that I would be trying to pattern up their care you know, making sure that we go to wherever the best unit is, making sure that I'm asking the right questions, you know, paying for private care, even if that's what, you know, needs to happen. Um, But I think that although you're saying, like, you can't do anything about it, I think the podcast is doing something about it because nobody's talking about this stuff. Yeah, 100%. There's a lot more work um, going on now, especially among black black mums, there's the five times more campaign. There's loads of different, um, you know, organizations and people and, and black, even members of the public who are really kind of making waves in terms of getting awareness around uh, black maternal health and, and neonatal health and outcomes. But I think like like I was saying, I just wanted to be part of spreading the awareness, know what questions to ask, know what the, the issues are in, maternity and maternal health and all of these things even down to for example one of the episodes on the podcast talks about leadership in midwifery services and how that impacts service provision so you know of course every hospital serves a different demographic of people but when there are non-white at least if even if not black um, people in senior positions they then become the advocates for implementing services for non-white people, whether that be black, Asian or whatever. Um, and so that is a quite, a, 
quite an important factor that people sometimes don't take into account. Things like as a young black midwife, 20 whatever, fresh face and, and fancy free, coming up, I want to see someone that looks like me and know where to aspire to. Yeah. So um, I touch on little bits and pieces like that in the podcast, as well as sharing some stories uh, from black, black mums, their experiences giving birth. So I, I, I did um, a segment called the Brown Mama Circle where uh, a mum uh, who's given birth or had experience in maternity services just speaks about their journey, what happened, or, or a significant event in their in their maternity journey. So um, I really enjoyed doing that. Um, now that the pandemic is not pandemicking yes. as it used to, be. <laughs> I haven't right, actually it's coming done. back. <laughs> it's called Brown Mama Brown Me. Um, so it's on all the Spotify's and the iTunes podcast apps and the whatnot. Oh, I'd have to have a listen. And anyone, anyone else listening, please do go and have a listen. Yeah, yeah, have yeah. a listen. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed doing that. So I mean. As I said, I've slapped a lot on doing episodes, which I need to kind of jump back on. But um, what's there, I think, has been quite helpful. Um, it was disseminated amongst the student midwives that especially work in my trust. And, and now I'm seeing some evidence that they're taking on board that black maternal health is That's quite really good. Yeah, 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 really good. We, this is, we need to have more conversations because we don't. Like I, said, I had I had my experiences. Like I said, I've had I've given birth to four babies. I had my mm-hmm. own experiences, and it wasn't only until after losing Zion and I'd done my research that I realised that how disadvantaged we are. I never it's knew. Huge. It's huge. It's huge. Yeah, I didn't know. I thought it. I thought it was personal to me, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of people think that your situation is personal to you. But when they actually look at the statistics and see actually how many people that look like you suffer the same like you, then you you have to question. It's not. It's not just a coincidence. No, it's not at all. And I think and that that piece that you that you spoke about in terms of the senior level management being people that look like you, I think. And and as you know, that's like that's my thing that I work with in the in the corporate mm-hmm. world. So my whole thing is about uh, getting um, ethnic minorities, women, you know, people with disabilities at board level to be yeah. and to get rid of that disparity because that's the only way not only for people to be able to look up and see people that look like them but like you say people that understand what it is that we need being in those positions to be able to speak when those policies procedures ways of working when that cultural change is being done to be able to speak from that perspective and I think that that's that is actually the most important thing and it's also about you know, why are we not at those levels? Some of it is not just because of discrimination. Some of it is because we think or we know that when we do go into those places, we're going to have to fight to be able to advocate. And so we shy away from it. Why would I take the stress? Yeah, 100%. 100%. So, you know, it is one of the things that I, I mean, I'm a midwifery sister um and oh well done congratulations (laughs) (laughs) um yeah even just you know mentally for me and I'm thinking to myself if I put one foot wrong what will happen to me yeah the, the psyching out of of the things that I'm telling myself mentally and 
you know, the pressure that I'm putting on myself is one thing. So it's multifaceted, it's, but it comes from both sides. We have to be the ones that strive to put, put ourselves and place ourselves in those environments as well as being welcomed into those environments as well. You so You need to come out of that mentality, that, that trap that's been set for us for centuries upon centuries. 100%. That we are capable we One can minute. do this. I tell my daughters, I t- well, I make them tell me, I ask them, what are you? And they have to tell me, I'm, <laughs> I'm clever. And I'm yes. a boss. Because yeah. I'm like, <laughs> in this house. Yeah, so, and that's what I'm teaching my children. You got, yeah. you, 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 we're powerful. And we, we count and we, we stand for stuff just like everybody else. And there's people out there that look just like us that are just as capable to do these jobs as everybody else. So why aren't we? weren't we and the thing is it's not as well about trying to prove that we are better than anybody else or you know trying to prove our worth it's about the value that each person can add to making the system what it's supposed to be and it's about taking those gifts and those values um and and being able to appreciate and seeing them for what they are one box does not fit all no and that's it it, it, they always try to make us all fit in one box and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. But that is, this This is a whole nother podcast episode. <laughs> I'm like, I've got so in my head, I'm like, where's this? Literally, like a film of voice raising and everything. <laughs> so we do definitely need to have one. We've said this with the, with the, the last podcast we did as well, that we need to have this, <coughs> something that we all feel passionate about. So we'll have to invite you along to that one as well, Grace. For sure. Little um, panel. <laughs> yeah, but... Um, I want to just thank you so much for coming on today and thank you for talking to us about what you do and please keep doing what you do because from the little bit that you've given us today you sound amazing where do you where 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 do you work if I ever have another baby I'm going there (laughs) I ain't having no more babies I'm done (laughs) I think that's you and me both Three, three, you, us three. (laughs) (laughs) High fives all around. (laughs) (laughs) But no, seriously, like you, you, you obviously have an understanding of the, the, it's the small things that count and the the little things that you do and how they impact people. And they really, really do. Like if you didn't realise it before, it really does. It does make a difference. And the the midwife is so important. So, but you're important too. So you have to look after yourself too. And I hope your, what's the word, your organisation looks after you as well. Yeah, they do. Do you know what? I think we we just have to know where our boundaries lie. We have to protect our boundaries. We have to protect ourselves, our mental health and well-being, you know, and really kind of know ourselves actually. Because if you're not going to look after yourself and do what you need to do for yourself, then people will take what they can take so um I'm really grateful to be a midwife truly 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 grateful to be a midwife um because as I said that's you know one of the most important journeys that a person and family will will have and for you to just impact it positively for them to leave that hospital with their baby feeling positive rather than traumatized if you can impact that then for me that's 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 the goal you know so I appreciate you for having me on. Oh, we appreciate you for coming. I really enjoyed chopping it up. <laughs> yes. It's been lovely. Oh, Thanks so much, Grace. No probs. Thank you. Take care.